I got this letter in the mail and it was from Fortune magazine. And it says, congratulations, uh, your company is in the Fortune 500. And I'm like, holy bleep. And I was like, okay, <laughs> hey, hold that. We, we're going to get all that on the podcast. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my super amazing co-host, <laughs> Ellen McGirt, and we have a real treat for this episode, don't we, Ellen? We sure do. We sure do. A titan of technology business, someone who has lived and died and reinvented himself and his company in extraordinary ways, a household name, and a friend of fortune in some interesting ways, which we learned about in his new book. Yeah, and, and maybe we can start by talking about that. The book is Play Nice But Win, mm -hmm. uh, and and fortune does play a significant role in it. Uh, and I think I play a role in it as the clueless journalist <laughs> who, who Michael Dell is, is trying to get to understand the world. <laughs> so, Michael Dell, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be with you both today. So I'm, I'm sorry to be so self-referential, but let's start with the fortune, <laughs> the fortune story. Why is fortune important to the Michael Dell story? Well, as you know, fortune sort of gets weaved through the book because it was at you know one of your conferences that Egon Durbin from Silver Lake introduced himself to me. It was in the summer of 2012. And that ultimately led to the biggest go private in tech ever, yeah. where we bought the company back from the public shareholders. And of course, that wasn't the easiest thing in the world uh, as, as yeah, let's let's stop on that just for a second. The biggest go private yeah. tech company in history, and it all happened at a Fortune conference. Is that what I just heard you say? <laughs> Some of it happened in Hawaii too. Mike. That's what you heard. That's what you heard, Alan. <laughs> but that's not exactly how it went down. Yeah, you know, uh, I I knew about Silver Lake, but I really didn't know Egon at the time, and you know, he introduced himself, and that led to a meeting which ultimately, you know, kind of kicked off a process. Yeah, it was the beginning of a, of a great uh, acceleration in the transformation of the company. A couple of years later, we did the largest merger acquisition ever in technology, uh, you know, buying EMC and, and VMware, and, uh, you know, did that as a, as a private company and then ultimately became a public company again. I, I want to put an, a pin in that because I think it's a really important part of our discussion. But I know Ellen is on the verge of a, a different question. I'm going to let her go first. But I just want to flag for listeners this issue of why you had to go private in order to achieve your transformation, because I think that's really important and to me a little bit disturbing. I mean, why can't a transformation happen in the public markets? The public markets are, are what we think about as the democratization of capital. So we'll come back to that. But Ellen, you first. That's 
really an important issue. So let's be sure to come back to that. But I did want to flag the book. Play Nice But Win is extraordinary. But man, we know a lot about you now from the, <laughs> the things that you read as a child to your disgruntled teachers who learned that that you made more than them with your entrepreneurial spirit at age you know, 16 to how you thought about markets and opportunity emerging around you. Really one of the greatest foundational, here's how to think about the world and business books I've read in a really long time. The closest thing you'll ever get to an Oprah question from us is this. And I, I flag this specifically because all of the details about how you went private and how you thought through this are in the book. But did you learn anything new about yourself as you went through this process? Because this is a rigorously self-reported book. Yeah, it was kind of cathartic. I mean, as I pieced it together, there were times when a whole bunch of, of memories just came pouring through me you know, <laughs> uh, that I'd forgotten about. But yeah, I would also say that Alan has met me maybe a thousand times or so. <laughs> uh, you know, I've not been somebody who's been prone to a lot of personal uh, disclosure in the past and, you know, felt that it was kind of time and I felt more comfortable doing that. And my first book in the in the late 90s pretty much had none of that. And, and this book has a, has a lot of it. And and it's fun to see, you know, how people are reacting to it. Yeah, you know, Ellen already referred to this, but it is a very personal book. We learned a lot about you and and how you think and how you work. I like the fact that you began your career uh, selling newspaper subscriptions. Can you talk about that story a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So so I had a lot of various jobs and things. I'd love to work, you know, and, and make money. Actually, <laughs> when I was when I was a little kid and. When I was able to drive, the number of jobs you could get, you know, increased pretty geometrically, right? And uh, I got this job working for the Houston Post newspaper in the in the summers. Uh, the Houston Post no longer exists; it was acquired by the Chronicle. And my job was they had this big bullpen of kids, and they'd give us these sheets of paper with kind of lists of phone numbers, and we would call people on the phone and try to sell them a subscription to the Houston Post newspaper. And I ended up being the top salesperson the first full month I worked there. And what I figured out was that there were a couple things. First of all, if you sounded like the people you were talking to and you kind of struck up a conversation with them, I won't do any impressions for you now. <laughs> uh, don't. I think that's politically incorrect today. But yeah, it's totally politically incorrect. I guarantee you, 100%. You were more successful in selling the newspaper if you sounded like the people you were talking to. Uh, the other thing I figured out was that people who were getting married and or moving to a new residence were way more likely to buy the newspaper. Okay. And so then I figured out that when you want to get married, you have to get a marriage license. And through the Freedom of Information Act, you could go to the county courthouse. And in Texas, all of those marriage licenses are available to anyone. And on the license, they have an address which shows where they want the license to be sent to, okay? So it was like jackpot. And so yeah. you go to the county courthouse and you say, I want to see all the marriage licenses for Harris County for 
the last year, okay? And the guy on the other end of the counter looks at you like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. <laughs> and you know, he goes off for like an hour or two, comes back with these enormous books. And then I figured out there's 16 counties surrounding Houston, did a direct mail campaign, hired a bunch of my buddies. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. You got to do the follow-up story about the teacher too. Yes, yes. But I wanted to also add, Michael Dell, you brought your Apple II computer with you to the courthouse. I mean, yeah. It was in your yeah. car. You automated, like you took the, that extra step to make it even more efficient. I mean, I, that part I couldn't believe. Well, I mean, you wanted to print a label that was pretty respectable and looked like it was semi-professional. If you were doing it by hand, you know, that wouldn't be so good. So yeah, this was before uh, portable computers. So I was taking my Apple II around. I had a bunch of my high school buddies and they did, did the same. But yeah, so I was in government and economics class, uh, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Miller. How, how, how old are you at this point? I was, I was like 17, I think, you know, I'd go in the back of the classroom and and I was reading computer magazines because that was what I was interested in. And she got really upset with me because I wasn't paying attention in class. And she called my dad and she's like, uh, hey, you know, Michael's goofing off in class. And this wasn't actually the first time my dad had had calls like this. And so he <laughs> kind of told the, the teacher the same thing he told other teachers. He said, uh, well, why don't you give him a test? And if he doesn't do well, then call me back. And so she never called him back. So, <laughs> But then she gave an assignment to the class and she said, okay, the assignment is you're going to fill out your tax return. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I go off and fill out my tax return. I turn it in and, you know, Mrs. Miller kind of proudly a few days later marches into the classroom and says, well, it looks like Michael has made a big mistake on his assignment for his tax return. According to this, you know, he made more money than, than I did. And, uh, you know, everybody's sort of looking at me and it's like, like, what's going on here? And like, well, wow, you made a really big mistake in your tax return. And I just said, well, that's actually my tax return. So, so, so that, that, she hated me even more after that. <laughs> I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020 in the midst of a lot of bad news was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue? I do, Alan. And I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. We're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments the companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, productivity. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. Can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, 
glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leveraged that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk, and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go-forward basis. Joe, thank you. Alan, pleasure to be here. I want to go back to the go private moment because you built this incredible company selling mail order computers. It was straight mail order sales, very successful, became the way people bought computers. Mail order, that's not a phrase I've heard in a long time, but But that's what you did. That's what you did. <laughs> but most of our sales were to were not to consumers. To businesses. To businesses, government. But they would go, they'd go to the website and tell you what they needed and they'd bring it in and Yeah, the web didn't come along till the mid-90s, but yes. Okay, so you the the moment came where you felt you had to transform the business pretty profoundly to deal with this new era of technology. And you ultimately made the decision with the help of a fortune conference to do that (laughs) by going private because you didn't think you could transform the company in the public markets. And I, I understand that, but I also find it kind of disturbing. Can you talk about why you couldn't have done it as a public company and why you felt you had to go private to get it done? Well, I think the main point would be that in 2012, 2013, the transformation was was rate limited as a public company. And if you sort of go back and you understand the context, you know, we were investing in the late 2000s in software and cloud, data center, security, all kinds of new areas organically acquiring all these new companies and it was investment, right? And so it didn't always produce a a return right away. And at the same time, there was this incredible rise of the smartphone and the tablet around the same time. And so, uh, you know, you'll remember people were like, oh, the smartphone's here. We no longer need PCs. <laughs> and so it's like the death of the PC, all of that. And so the more we went off and did these new things, the less the market liked it. And that was kind of sad and depressing, but at some point it created this silver lining where, hey, you know, if we could buy back all the shares of the company and no longer be publicly listed, we could really accelerate the transformation and, you know, make the investments that we wanted to make. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, give Egon Durbin the credit for recognizing that as a possibility and then ultimately becoming my partner in achieving that, which did kick off at your Fortune Conference. But so, and Ellen, allow me to just pursue this one step further, because the public companies in the capital markets, the idea at least was a democratization of capitalism. You know, stock is held by pension funds and the ordinary policeman and the ordinary factory worker owns a piece of Dell and, you know, can profit from your success. And by saying you had to go private to do this, you're really going to a world where your success made you and Egon Durbin and a lot of Silver Lake partners very uh, happy and wealthy, but didn't have that same kind of democratization effect. So isn't it a pretty damning commentary on public capital markets that you had to do that? 
Well, first of all, you know, there was no guarantee of our success. I mean, it's nice to talk about it now, but it could have just as well failed, right? And <laughs> not worked. And the way it's also important to recognize that when you endeavor to take a company private, effectively you're putting it up for sale. Anybody can buy it. And whoever wants to pay the most for it becomes the buyer. And so that could have been somebody else. Turned out it was Silver Lake and, and me that did it. And in that process, the board sets up an independent committee. And of course, the duty to the shareholders is to get the highest possible price from anyone. And ultimately, the shareholders got a price which gave them some of the benefits of our potential transformation if we were successful okay. without taking on any of the risk at all. They got paid in cash. So they got this pretty massive premium from the price before anybody heard about this idea, didn't have to take on any of the risk. Well, let me build on that though. So how do you think about innovation, transformation, and making complex investments now? You know, how do you think through Dell Technologies, how do you think about it now and making sure that the same kinds of conditions, we're going through an era of massive transformation. So how do you make sure those conditions that would allow you to be nimble and experimental and innovative are, are present now? Yeah, I think going back to 2013, we once we were private, reignited the entrepreneurial engine of the company and ignited risk-taking in, in a big way. And yeah, I mean, it's it's important to keep that alive and to have a an ability to invest in new areas. I mean, this last quarter, we had double-digit 15% growth. We're well over $100 billion in revenues this year, and we're investing heavily in many new multi-billion dollar opportunities that are that are in front of us. Yeah. So let's talk about those technologies for the future, because I think, and this is just building on the point you were talking about. I mean, you compare at the end of the book, you compare what's happening now to the Cambrian explosion in evolutionary history, that you've mm. got this collection of technologies, cloud technology, internet of things, massive collection of data from sensors everywhere, ability of smart algorithms to make sense of all that data that basically requires every company to go through a transformation that's probably as big or even bigger than the one you went through after 2012. So are companies positioned to do what they need to do to take advantage of this incredible Cambrian explosion of technology that you're set up to provide them with? Well, I think it's it's not, first of all, it's not just companies, it's also governments and pretty much all aspect of society. So nobody's going to be spared from this. I think everything is going to be upended <laughs> with all these technologies coming together. And the answer to your question is, of course, it varies dramatically, right? Some organizations mm -hmm. are really understanding this and are, you know, aggressively altering themselves you know, to, to go take advantage of it and be at the forefront of that. And some are, you know, woefully behind and, and uh, getting worse. And I think you'll see a greater degree of separation and, you know, sort of all the business cycles accelerating even faster, separating out the winners and, and the losers in that process. And, 
It's going to be pretty wicked and brutal, but also wonderful and amazing because all the new capabilities that that will be created. And look, I believe it's going to unlock an enormous amount of human potential. And when you think about all the people in the world that are not participating in the economy to the fullest extent possible, I think we're going to need all those folks to, to join us. And that's a great opportunity. So I, I truly believe that while there's been enormous progress you know, in the last several decades, technology being a major catalyst for that, I believe all of that has just been the pregame show for what's about to come. So you talk about that at the end of the book. Um, again, it's a very optimistic, really energizing view of the future. But you talk about inequality in a very elegant way. As you describe technology as fire, fire that illuminates and transforms. Um, but the pesky problem is, in your words, is that as economies advance, they become more specialized. And with the rise of specialization, in income inequality grows deeper. And I thought that was a really profound way to connect those two things. Now, you don't bring us a succinct answer because there isn't one. And I get that we all have to work on it together. That's actually the work. But how do you think our listeners and people in business can best think about inequality as they continue to invent the future? Well, I wish I had an answer. I, I don't, you know, if somebody has an answer, please tell me what it is. But yeah, I mean, the point is that not everybody can program the robots, right? And as our economy continues to advance, it's going to be more specialized and that's going to create more inequality. Nobody likes to hear that, but that's just the way it works. Now, I think the opportunity is if you if you think about sort of the seven and a half billion people in the world from the perspective of the economy, right? You'd say, wow, there's like an enormous number of people who are not fully participating. And so how do you give them the skills and bring them in? And I think that's a lot of how, you know, the the economy is going to expand beyond anybody's imagination in the decades to come. Yeah, I believe technology is going to play an enormous role in this. I mean, technology is maybe 5% of global GDP right now, but you know, in a decade, it could be 10% of global GDP. And most of that growth will not come in the traditional areas where people think of technology, you know, in the IT mm -hmm. departments and things like that. It will be in everything else that is enabled by technology and, and software and AI and machine learning. And yeah, that requires all sorts of new capabilities, skills, investments, et cetera. Michael, Ellen's question about inequality raises the point that you really kind of have two revolutions going on right now in business at the same time. One is the Cambrian explosion of, of technology and data and technology capabilities. The other is what I think is, is a pretty dramatic, maybe equally dramatic change in the way businesses are thinking about their social responsibilities. And you devote a lot of time to this in the last chapter. You not only talk about inequality, you talk about diversity and inclusiveness, and you talk about the climate challenge, again, in a book about business. And you even talk about how you're going to spend your time going forward more focused on some of these big issues. How do those two things fit together? You've already made a reference to this, the technology revolution and the revolution in business responsibility to society. Well, as, as you know, this has sort of been building and brewing for some time. And 
I think companies uh, have an enormous role to play here. I mean, stating the obvious, people in uh, government don't seem to agree on much, at least in our country. And I think speaking for the people that work in our company, you know, the message that's really clear is they don't want to just build the things that we build. They want to be part of something that is important and really makes a difference in the world. And that goes beyond just creating great products and services. And so I think the whole ESG movement, you know, broadly is a wonderful thing because you have organizations voluntarily figuring out how they can innovate and make the world better, right? Uh, 10 years ago, we set some really aggressive goals for ourselves for 2020 around all these domains. And we didn't exactly know how we were going to do those things, but that drove a lot of innovation and we achieved a lot of breakthroughs. Likewise, for 2030, we've set very aggressive goals for ourselves. Again, don't exactly know how to, to do them, but we're working hard and you know making milestones all the time. And I think you're seeing tons of, of companies do similar things. And I believe all of that collective effort is going to lead to lots of progress. And just weaving it back to the earlier discussion, the opportunity to include everyone in this world, in the economy, is profound. See, that's an optimistic vision. Everyone should read this book. If you're <laughs> going to start a company, you're probably an optimist, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's true. You got to be. There, that's really is, true. There is so much more we would love to go in, in here. You do a little score settling in the book. Uh, Carl Icahn doesn't come off terribly well. Uh, Meg Whitman took a little bit of uh, a little bit of shade, I think, during the course of the thing. So we could probably go on for hours, but then our producer mm. would be mad at us and have to cut out all the extra stuff that we put in. <laughs> Thank you so much for a delightful conversation and a, and a delightful book. And maybe we can close by you telling us you are in my book, maybe not in Ellen's book, but in my book, you are a young man. <laughs> what are you going to do now? What, what are you going to do for an encore? You know, well, thank you for all that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still having a lot of fun. It's a real privilege to be able to be a part of the incredible role that technology has in enabling human progress. And that continues to excite me. I think we're getting to an even more interesting part with all the technologies that we discussed you know, I'll want to spend more time on our philanthropic activities that my wife has devoted herself to in the future. And I've got plenty to keep me busy. I'm the chairman of three public companies. And, uh, you know, so there's lots to lots to do there. Four kids, one grandchild now. So wow. my goal, if I if I had one, is, is I want to be surrounded by grandchildren. So I uh, hope we've got, <laughs> got that to look forward to. Enjoy it. Oh, enjoy. Nice talking with you. Thank you both. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Thank you. 
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 